welcome to Meanwhile in the Future. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Meanwhile in the Future is a podcast about the future. We start every episode with a trip to the future, and then come back to today to talk about how that future might work. Ready? Great. Let's go to the year 2047. In world news, 13,000 researchers and assistants boarded helicopters today for the beginning of Operation Roundup. The project is a collaboration between the United Nations and the International Union for Conservation of Nature that's aimed at gathering up endangered species to prevent extinction. Operation Roundup is the fourth phase of the larger Project ARC, a worldwide push to save endangered species by housing them in zoos worldwide. For the past 10 years, over 180 countries have constructed zoos to house their region's wildlife. Maya Wynn, the chief scientist for Operation Roundup, says she expects the gathering process to take at least three years. Okay, everybody here? Is Fatima here? Great. Running down the list for today, please call out if you gathered any specimens and how many. Bear's poacher. None. Chinese pangolin. Three. Gharial. Two. Hopia odorata. One. Organ pipe coral. None. Pygmy hog. Three. Wide-nosed guitarfish. Two. So in this future, we've rounded up all of the animals and plants on the IUCN critically endangered list and put them in armored zoos. Let's start with logistics. Even before we round up all of the animals and plants we're trying to save, we have to first figure out where they will go, which means building zoos, a lot of zoos. Right now, according to the American Zoo and Aquarium Association, there are over 10,000 zoos worldwide. But to accommodate all of these extra animals, we'll need a whole lot more. If we just were to take a snapshot right at this time, there, if we look at the uh, the the endangered critically endangered species list by IUCN. There's 212 mammals on the list. There's 2,687 vertebrates, um, and if you include insects and mollusks, then 3,436 animals. And totaling, if we include endangered critically endangered plants, we're up to 5,641 species. That's Dr. Vint Verga, a veterinarian who works with zoos to help animals get more comfortable. As Verga points out, right now there are thousands of animals and plants on the IUCN critically endangered list. And that list isn't exactly shrinking. I called Verga because I wanted to know what it would take to build zoos that do a good job of keeping these animals alive and happy. Verga is famous, at least among zoo people, as someone who really just gets animals. He's the guy that zoos call when their snow leopard is depressed or their zebra is anxious. And both of those are real examples. Here's how he thinks about building enclosures for animals. I look at the areas or the avenues of life that I think are most uh, important for that animal or that person. And, and, and what I look at all those things is, is spokes on a wheel. So if I walk up to uh, a habitat where there is a, uh, a group of wild animals working, living in that habitat, or even just a single wild animal, let's, I will look at that, that bear or that lion or tiger, and I will look at what are the things that I know about tigers and how they live in the wild that they spend their time doing. Well, they, they spend a good amount of time hunting. They also spend um, time socializing um, with other tigers. They also spend a certain amount of time 
uh, grooming and maintaining themselves. Um, they spend time separate from hunting, eating. Um, they, they spend time resting, sleeping, um, and then, of course, um, breeding and carrying on their species. And I will look at an animal um, wherever their setting is and draw out those different um, activities or, or ways in which they would spend their life. And then I look at how, how balanced, if I were to draw those all as spokes on a wheel, how balanced is that animal's life? So for all of those animals, all 5,000 or so of them that we gather up, zoos will have to think about what each of these organisms cares about and needs and how to give it to them. Once zoos are built, then there's the question of how exactly we might go about gathering all the animals up to fill those zoos. How many do we take? All of them? Some of them? It seems honestly absurd to try to gather up every single individual pangolin and tiger and shark. Well, it's it's absurd, you know, to think about uh, collecting the last remaining survivors of every species. But, you know, on, on a species by species basis, it's not it's not entirely crazy. You know, in the 1980s, we rounded up every California condor that was in the wild. I think there was about 22 of them. And we brought them into... Uh, the San Diego Zoo and the LA Zoo, where they instituted a captive breeding program. Um, and now, in the wild, we have some 200-and-something wild California condors. That's Jason Goldman. And I am a science writer on the wildlife ecology conservation beat. Goldman is actually the one who suggested this scenario for the podcast, and he raised some really interesting questions about how this whole system might work. For example... Should the animals stay in their home regions, or should they get shipped to zoos around the world? In other words, should the pangolins that we gather go to zoos in Asia or zoos in Europe? Now, let's say that we do manage to round up all of the elephants and enclose them and breed them. There are a few extra challenges with this plan. First of all, for animals with long gestation periods, it can take decades for a population to rebound. The gestation period for elephants is almost two years, and females generally wait five years in between calves. Throughout all that time, while we're trying to breed animals, ostensibly to release them back into the wild, a lot is changing. You know, it's not just about preserving the land. You know, uh, uh, a suitable habitat for for any given animal is, is is like defined by by an ecosystem, right? So if you remove something like elephants from their ecosystem, um, for 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 a long period of time like that. Um, will even if you you know put up really good fences around the land and keep everybody out and just the wildlife that remains therein will it still be the same ecosystem you know there's there's good evidence that uh you know some of these like mega herbivores like elephants and rhinos they provide a really important role in regulating the plant communities in those ecosystems and if they don't do that, then that might change the community of uh, insects or small mammals or lizards in that ecosystem, and that can sort of, you know, like the, um, like a like a trail of dominoes. So by the time we actually have a population of elephants that's robust enough to release back into the wild, that wild might not be able to sustain them. And they might not be ready for that wild either. And when it comes to elephants, I think they're a great example because it's so offensive to elephants um, that you could do that. Uh, that just presupposes that there's no such thing as elephant culture. Um, and we know, and there's been so many incredible studies that show that elephants do have culture, and it's multi-generational. And that's something that's lost when you take a species and put it into captivity. 
That's Laurel Braitman, the author of a book called Animal Madness, about animals that lose their minds. So elephants will teach each other where to find food. They will teach each other the route to take to migrate from one place to another. Um, they know where their dead are. Uh, they, ha- they will learn and be taught communication over great distances. Imagine all of the elephant skills that would be lost um, if generations were bred in captivity. There would be no elders left to teach the young ones what to do when they finally were released back into the wild. And then there's the problem of inbreeding, when we take a small population and try to breed them to release them. There's also the issue of protection. Even today, there are cases of people stealing animals from zoos. Seriously, it's a thing. Which means that if all of these animals that are, in many cases, endangered because of poaching, are put into one place, that place will probably need extra security. If there's a market for something, um, and it, in some ways maybe it's easier to steal an animal from a zoo than to go to the wild and try to catch one. So, to recap, it would be insanely hard to actually gather up all of these organisms. It would be insanely expensive to build the zoos they need to keep them happy and safe. And even if we succeeded at those two things, it might be impossible to breed them and re-release them. Which brings us to, I guess, the big question. What is the point of this? You know, even if we could round up the last 20, you know, elephants or tigers or whatever, um... Why are we doing that? Do we know, you know, might, we might be able to breed them, but will their offspring have so many problems, you know, in let's say three or four or even 10 generations um, that that they can't sustain a wild population or even a captive population? And if so, is it better uh, from a conservation perspective or even from an animal welfare perspective to to let that species go extinct as sad as it might be? You know, the, there are far more species in the history of our planet that have gone extinct than there are that currently exist, right? You know, I, I, guess, I, guess, I guess I'm just not sure what the point would be. Wow, that is the question that I, I, um, I, I think is um, something that I struggle with um, every day with the animals that, that I work with. And, and it's a question that, that I don't think there is an answer to. Now, this plan may seem absurd to you. Who would think it's a good idea to try to round up all of the critically endangered species and put them in zoos? We would. We already kind of do this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fantastical, but it's also the world that we're already living in. That's Breitman again. You know, to me, this is not exactly a future scenario. Like, all contemporary zoos, um, for the most part, justify their existence now because they're doing this kind of futuristic scenario, which is no longer futuristic, which is there are these kind of arcs and biobanks for the future. We're already basically positioning zoos as places to preserve species, for breeding, for gathering their DNA, which not everybody thinks is a good way of doing things. I think that a world in which critically endangered animals are inside zoos just sounds like weirdly fetishy to me. Uh, it's such a strange idea of animalness and what animals are, you know, that an elephant can be an elephant no matter where they are. Um, or a tiger is a tiger, even if they're in Central Park, um, eating biscuits, you know, or um, ground turkey. So I think that what's at stake really is how we think about animals in a really comprehensive way, and, and also how we think about the interconnectedness of non-human nature and, and humans. And here's where we're going to get a little bit meta. 
What does it even mean to conserve a species? And why are we so obsessed with doing it? Bear with me here, because these are important questions that we're going to have to answer as humans in the future, sooner than later. Um, if we round them all up and, and we put them in, you know, <laughs> the equivalent of, you know, a, a beaker, it's really saying and making a statement about what we think the role of animals are and, and defining them in relation not to their world, um, but to something else entirely. Like, is that their genetic code? You know, what is that? It's very unlikely that an individual tiger or an individual panda has a sense of its belonging to a larger species or a larger subspecies that is going extinct and is thus willing to sacrifice itself and its well-being for the sake of the species. That's Kritika Srinivasan, a scientist who works on social, ecological, and animal justice. She spends a lot of time thinking about how harm and care interact in the context of animals. In other words, places in which we might think we're doing the right thing, but in order to do so, have to harm some animals or people in the process. I asked her if she would vote yes or no on a plan to gather up all these animals, and here's what she said. Oh, no. <laughs> Why? Would we, that's an easy question. <laughs> no, it's simple because I, 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 but I especially think that where situations where harm and care are entangled are the most dangerous ones. Srinivasan thinks that we can justify this plan in three ways. So aesthetic values, ecological values, and then the intrinsic value that you might attribute to an animal. Aesthetic value simply means that we like tigers. We want tigers to be around. Their existence pleases us. If you're thinking purely in terms of such an aesthetic value, then the prop your proposition would work because it lets you uh, destroy the forest for setting up a resort or for setting up uh, homes or for setting up an industry. At the same time, uh, having the tiger in the zoo allows you to go, go and see the tiger or know that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to see the tiger um, so your aesthetic uh, needs are satisfied. Ecological value is the possible impact that these animals have on our health and the health of the environment. And intrinsic value is the consequence to the animal itself. If you were to look at whether picking up the tigers and putting them in a zoo um, so that the forest can be destroyed so as to allow certain human activities to go on, then you it's very clear that there's no way in which you can construct that scenario as being good in and off for the tigers in and of themselves. But let's say that we do manage to get all of these animals rounded up and situated in zoos for breeding. What does it mean to live in a world where we've taken every single elephant and put them in a zoo, or every single pangolin? We're even setting aside all the, the hazards of there not being other species around us, um, uh, or as many other species around us by far. There's also the, the very real um, uh, emotional effect that will have on us. We will essentially be... Uh, humans with um, very few companions on on the planet on which we can to which we can turn to 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 feel like we're to understand our role in relationship to the world. You know, but the idea of scooping them up and putting them somewhere, uh, you know, is is depressing for a lot of reasons. Um, maybe the biggest one of all is the loss of mystery, like losing all that we don't know we don't know yet. So while our future probably doesn't include a concerted campaign to go out and gather up all of these animals, it almost certainly contains a continued push towards zoo-based conservation. And it certainly contains extinction. You know, no one would let me do this, I think, but what I've always wanted to do is open a zoo, um, and in front of the cages that would house critically endangered animals, they would be empty. And in front of that exhibit would be a sign, and it would say, you know, the polar bear used to live here, but the polar bear is now extinct. 
For more on how zoos and non-zoos are trying to save our dying species, head to gizmodo.com, where we'll post links to more information. Meanwhile in the Future is a podcast from Gizmodo. It's produced by me, Rose Eveleth, with help from the Gizmodo staff. Special thanks this week to Kathleen Fitzpatrick, Brian Lufkin, Maren McKenna, Alyssa Walker, and Jess Zimmerman. Also, thank you to those who filled out the survey about the show. It was extremely fascinating because half of you want more zany episodes and half of you want more realistic episodes. So you'll be getting some of both coming up. If you want to tell me what you think about the show or propose a future scenario or just say hello, send an email to overthinkingit at gizmodo.com or say hello on Twitter at Meanwhile Future. That's all for this future. Come back next week and we'll head to a different one. 